In early January, FBI agents in Norfolk, Virginia, picked up some alarming intelligence about what was being planned by some right-wing activists headed to Washington for the rally called by Donald Trump to protest the results of the presidential election. The activists were talking among themselves online and making no secret about what they had in mind. Be ready to fight, one of them wrote. Congress needs to hear glass breaking, doors being kicked in, and blood. Stop calling this a march or a rally or a protest. Go there ready for war. We get our president or we die. On the 5th of January, the Norfolk office circulated a situational information report about what it had learned. But there is still no indication that the document was widely distributed and shared throughout the government. Was this a failure of imagination, as some have suggested, or a failure by senior officials at the highest levels of the U.S. government to do their job? As the House prepares to impeach Donald Trump for a second time, we'll talk to Elizabeth Newman, the former Assistant Homeland Security Secretary for Counterterrorism, about the ongoing threat from right-wing extremism and the Trump administration's persistent refusal to take it seriously on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, the more we see about reports like this, about the intelligence that the government had about what might happen at that January 6th rally, the more it reminds me of something you and I know quite well, and that is the days after 9-11. We lived it, and what were we focused on? All the warnings that were out there that the CIA, the FBI, and primarily all of which they had, but primarily at the White House, it wasn't being taken seriously. Remember, bin Laden determined to strike in the U.S. That was the presidential daily brief presented to George W. Bush in August, just a little more than a month before the 9-11 attacks. The system is blinking red, was what uh, folks in the CIA were saying, and yet somehow it didn't get processed. People didn't take the steps needed to protect the country. And here it's almost like a replay. And, you know, the FBI after 9-11 was getting just a avalanche, a fire hose of intelligence. And you're talking about the intel that was, you know, the system blinking red before 9-11. Yes. Um, the point I want to make is what happened after 9-11, which was that the system was overloaded with intelligence. And I think it is part of what the challenge of law enforcement is going forward, which is 
you go online now, you see people who are making, you know, millions of people out there who believe in QAnon and, you know, other conspiracy theories and white supremacists and Proud Boys and they are making all sorts of incendiary threats, hate speech, vile commentary out there. And you do wonder whether the FBI and other law enforcement are overloaded, that they don't know how to separate the real threats from just the vile garbage that's out there on a daily basis. But underlying all of that is, you know, the difficulty a lot of people at senior levels of the government, particularly in this administration, have in viewing the people who did this, the white people who did this, as terrorists. Yeah. I mean, you know, we don't have that problem when it comes to Muslims. We didn't have that problem when it came to Antifa. But when it's, you know, yeah, white, we haven't, proud we have boys not made, or Trump supporters, we, not, we right. don't. And just to pick up on that, I don't know if you saw Chuck Schumer, the soon-to-be Senate Majority Leader, just gave a press briefing a, a couple hours ago talking about the need to put these people on a no-fly list, which is something the government did Greatly after 9-11, lots of Muslim Americans were placed on no-fly lists because they were suspected of terrorism. You know, why isn't the government doing the same thing here, putting some of these folks who have been identified as potential threats on the no-fly list? Because as our next guest, Elizabeth Newman, has said, the threat from right-wing extremists— and white supremacists in recent years has been significantly greater than the threat from Islamic extremists from overseas. And I think we are experiencing a kind of paradigm shift when people, I think, are beginning to realize that, sadly, because of all of these tragic events. And you can count them up. It's not just what happened on Wednesday at the Capitol. It's the Tree of Life attack. It's that guy that was sending out pipe bombs to political officials. You know, case after case after case in which people have been stirred up by by some of this rhetoric from politicians and their susceptibility to, to conspiracy theories. We're going to be having this conversation for a long time. There are going to be policy debates. There's going to be questions about whether a domestic counterterrorism law is necessary. We need to also be careful about the pendulum swinging too far uh, in the other direction. And there are going to be civil libertaries and privacy interests that we've got to keep at heart. But we are at a uh, transitional moment here, and we can only hope that in our collective wisdom, we handle it properly. <laughs> okay. Well, look, just to uh, punctuate that point, we still don't know at this point to what degree the attack on the Capitol was this a conspiracy of people who were planning to do exactly what was done or were these, you know, individual threats in which people were talking like this? But, you know, certainly this FBI uh, report suggests it may have been the former. And just again, since we started taping this podcast, the U.S. attorney in Chicago announced the arrest of a Chicago Heights man for a voicemail he left on a U.S. House member from New Jersey on December 29th 
2020, so just a week before, a little more than a week before the attack on the Capitol. And on that voicemail, I just want to read a couple of uh, uh, sentences from it. The guy arrested stated that if certain individuals, quote, think that Joe Biden is going to put his hand on the Bible and walk into that expletive White House on January 20, they're sadly expletive mistaken. The guy further stated on the voicemail, quote, we will surround the expletive White House and we will kill any expletive Democrat that steps on the expletive lawn. Gives you a good idea of where these folks are coming from. And on that note, let's get to Elizabeth Newman. As Assistant Secretary for Counterterrorism and Threat Prevention in the Department of Homeland Security, Elizabeth Newman was warning for some time about the threat of right-wing extremism and violence. Elizabeth, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me, Michael. I appreciate it. So you resigned last April, in part over protests. You're concerns that the Trump administration was not taking this threat seriously. As you have watched what has unfolded in Washington over the last week, both with the horrific attack on the Capitol and everything we have been learning since about what was known, about what was being planned, what goes through your mind? When the protests started turning violent, that part I was expecting. What I was not expecting was the utter security failure at the Capitol. And clearly there will be investigations to fully understand how they just so utterly failed. But never in my wildest dreams could would I have thought that uh, they could have successfully taken over the Capitol and enter into the, the Senate gallery, the Speaker's office. It just, it as you were watching it on Wednesday, it turned my stomach and the weight of, you know, that was my watch a year ago. So your mind starts to go through like, what more could I have done to get people to pay attention to this threat? Because those picture, pictures are just uh, horrific. And, and it, yeah. Uh, Elizabeth, you say you were expecting to get violent, yet in the days after, folks at the FBI, Capitol Police, all said they never imagined that this was going to happen. So explain the disconnect. How was it that you expected it, yet the people in charge of keeping the Capitol safe were not? You know, I, I don't know. I think they're not being truthful. Um, I think we'll find that there probably were voices at the FBI that were raising alarms. I, I've heard to talk to some colleagues that indicate that maybe some bulletins were drafted and weren't allowed to go out for some reason. So I, I think that there were probably people that were able to see it, but for whatever reason, the folks above could not and, and complacency set in. Well, yes, let's push on that for whatever reason that you just alluded to, because I think it's really important to try to understand what's at the root of this failure. 
and you've had a lot of time to think about that, not saying that we have that you have the answers, but what are some of the possibilities that go through your mind? Is it a kind of denial that's set in? Is it that, you know, we've been flooded on the internet with all of this incendiary hate speech? Or at some level, I mean, this is the worst of all of possibilities, but is there, we've become so politicized, is there possibly even some level of sympathy at play here? Not explicit, but implicit in the sense is, well, these people are, are on our side. They're not going to do these terrible things. What do you think it is? It's probably a complex answer. It's not, I don't think it's, it, there's a silver, silver bullet here. I noticed in 2017, when I came back to government, I had about a six or seven year gap where I was out that the counterterrorism community as a whole had, had changed. And, you know, I, I withheld judgment initially because, you know, I, I was not here for six, seven years. They matured and went through iterations and, you know, found bin Laden and, you know, started focusing on ISIS. But the, the big thing that was noticeable to me was a lack of urgency, especially around homeland threats. And thankfully there weren't that many on our watch, but there still was like this lack of muscle memory of how we learned how to do things kind of painfully post 9-11. So everything from how we communicated with our state and local partners, viewing our state and local partners as partners and not, I think at this point, the DHS relationship with state and local law enforcement is almost adversarial in nature. So there was a kind of a cultural shift of within the community itself, very focused on overseas threats, which is good. That's where most of them were, but didn't seem to have the muscle memory to know how to do homeland threats. So when the threat started to change and we're less concerned about homegrown violent extremists of the ISIS variety, and we start to notice at Charlottesville and then points afterwards, like we have a a trend here and it's going in the wrong direction. And what are we going to do about that? And first you had to get people to agree that we had a problem. And that took, it felt like a year or two. And sadly, punctuated by what happened at Pittsburgh, what happened in Christchurch over in New Zealand, you know, that was uh, because it happened overseas and it was the same ideology. It, it like clicked in for certain parts of the counterterrorism community that like, oh, this is, this isn't just, you know, some backwoods problem that the, the FBI handles. This is like an actual global terrorist threat movement. So all of those little bits and pieces, finally, you get to the place where DHS have been sounding the alarm since 2018. And by 2019, you had parts of the counterterrorism community kind of come along with us and say, oh, yes, this is a problem. Then El Paso happens. And there remind there people what happened in El Paso. So El Paso was uh, a guy from the northeast side of Texas drives about 12 hours to El Paso for the stated purpose of being able to take out Hispanics. And he, he did the drive because he figured he could get more Hispanics in El Paso than he could in northeast Texas. And his whole you know, manifesto was riddled with a bunch of stuff that typically you know, doesn't fully make sense. But... The aim was to take out Hispanics because there's a Hispanic invasion of our country and white people are being replaced by people of color, which is a classic white supremacist, white power ideology. But the, the key about um, El Paso was the use of the phrase Hispanic invasion, which was language that the president had been using for years uh, in his campaign speeches and in his campaign ad materials. 
So it's it was a moment where Trump's advisors recognized, oh, we, we've got a problem so much so they actually tried to do things to fix, um, like to try to create an optic that we were doing something. And it, it allowed some of the work that my team was doing in prevention to move forward. It got funded, uh, got funded again this last year. I mean, there, there were some good parts that came out of that, but in the process of working through El Paso, it became very clear that this administration was not actually going to describe and name the threat, which is the first thing you do before you figure out how to counter it. You have to name the thing. You have to explain what their aims are, who they are, um, how they operate in order to figure out your strategy of how you're going to, to counter them. So the fact that it wasn't, it wasn't just a, we had a bunch of people that were in over their head or they didn't see it coming. There was a decision, maybe it wasn't an affirmative decision, but just a decision to look the other way and not address this problem, even though multiple people were saying, you know, this we're already behind the eight ball, the threat is here, we need to be dealing with this. And it was just allowed to fester and move into an election cycle where it just got amplified all the more. Elizabeth, you said before that you had heard the FBI had been sending some warnings. Well, we learned today there was, in fact, the day before the riot on January 5th, a situational information report from the FBI in Norfolk that explicitly warned about an online thread discussing calls for violence, be ready to fight. People on the thread wrote, Congress needs to hear glass breaking doors being kicked in blood from their Black Lives Matter slave soldiers being spilled. Get violent. Go there ready for war. Now, that sounds pretty explicit. The FBI says, well, we didn't know exactly who was writing that. We saw the online thread. There were First Amendment concerns about political speech. But man, when you see that, what are you thinking? Yeah, I mean, anybody that has political speech concerns with with what's in this article, pretty sure that case law has demonstrated that if there is imminent, if there's a timeliness to it, imminency, which a day before it's imminent. In fact, under case law, I, my understanding of imminency is, you know, it can be as much as six months, right? So it it doesn't have to be like it's just about to happen. You have to, you have to warn, but imminency and that you know anything specific, you know, you have a specific target you have specific types of action, that's all, that's not just incitement to violence, that's a stated aim of violence. That is not protected speech at that point. It is absolutely allowed to be investigated. It's allowed to be reported on. And the fact that they put it in a a SIR, a SIR, means that the analysts recognize that. So why it didn't go anywhere beyond that, why there wasn't a strategic, um, what is called a joint information bulletin, a JIB, uh, that is the typical protocol. One came out before Charlottesville. FBI and DHS put one out before the Charlottesville riot. They knew that there was a likelihood for violence and they warned the uh, their partners about it. There was no warning issued before January 6th. It's in my view, total dereliction of duty. Would this report, total dereliction of duty, you say, would this report have been shared throughout the government? Would your office, the office you headed at Homeland Security, have seen this? And just as an add-on to that, we've heard almost nothing from Homeland Security throughout this whole crisis. And last night, the acting secretary, Chad Wolf, resigns. 
Yeah. So uh, the, your first question, the the intelligence report would be given to analysts at headquarters, assessed, and then rolled up into what my team would have gotten would be that jib, that strategic assessment. You know, the totality of all of the information we have, we assess that there is a high likelihood of violence, a low likelihood of violence, our, our level of confidence in that assessment is X. And then usually those bulletins suggest protective measures um, for the local law enforcement. The, the weird part about this particular event is that it wasn't in a Charlottesville where you had a mayor and a governor who needed to be informed of their assessment. It was happening here on federal property in the legislative branch. And I'm pretty sure that, that we're going to find that one of the big disconnects was the executive versus legislative branch coordination. But there's still, I mean, Metropolitan Police Department, they seem to know that something was awry. They asked for National Guard support. There And beyond this one report that has been uh, cited by the Washington Post, I'm aware of many others. So I still do not think that there is any reason that a information bulletin at that strategic level shouldn't have been shared. It could have been shared even as much as a week in advance because there was that much online to indicate that they were taking concrete steps towards violence. So it's a complete breakdown of how the system is supposed to work. But if you read some of the language in this report, as reported by the Washington Post, it's filled with kind of cautionary notes about the intelligence and about whether it should be shared or how it should be shared. I mean, it's it says it's raw intelligence. I think yes. the phrase is fi- it's not finally evaluated intelligence. Right. It says it represents the view of Norfolk, of the Norfolk field office, and not to be acted on without prior coordination with the FBI. So all of the you know warnings in there suggest, you know, don't share this. We don't know what this is. And the signals to the brick agents in that field office, you know, suggest, you know, maybe we shouldn't be buying into this. And, and I guess what I want to ask, I want to come back to uh, what I started to ask before, which is, you know, there is this flood of, you know, incendiary language and threats on the Internet. It's just everywhere at this point. And do you think law enforcement, there's so much of it that law enforcement is having a hard time sorting out the difference between bluster and what's actionable intelligence. And just to follow up on that for one second, we had Frank Figlusi on the podcast earlier this week, who was the former head of counterintelligence at the FBI. And he has said, and others have said the same thing, that that we need a federal domestic anti-terrorism statute, because it's only with that statutory authority that the FBI will then be able to go in when they see these threats and do further investigations with surveillance, with subpoenas, to sort the wheat from the chaff, if you will. What What's your kind of assessment of that range of challenges? I mean, it, this is extremely complex. That's why when we were starting to wrap our hand, arms around this as a counterterrorism community, we could only go so far. And we kept coming back to the White House saying, we need to have conversations conversations with Congress. We need to have a robust debate internally, a robust debate with the public about potentially changing laws. And I think the folks at the White House recognize, like with this president, with Trump, there's no way to do anything that complicated. And so they just kind of are like, yeah, that seems hard. We're not going to do it. 
which is why I went to Congress uh, in my last hearing and said, you guys need to create a, a commission to, to evaluate how we go after domestic terrorism. We need to reevaluate all a lot of the ways in which the FBI does business has been set in stone since the Church Commission, post Hoover, you know, a lot of lessons learned out of um, abuses, rightly so, that they, they have all these guardrails, but those guardrails are now being used as excuses to not be able to go after this threat. There are other former FBI agents that believe that FBI culture is a challenge in this space, you know, that we were kind of alluding to earlier. Like, is there a kind of a willful blind eye towards white people committing violence versus people of color committing violence? So there's a number of things here that need to be um, picked through um, on the other side of, of this tragedy to understand why we weren't prepared and what we need to do to fix it. But I, I tend to lean towards where Frank is leaning. That I, I, There are other people I respect that think we don't want a domestic terrorism statute. We can get at this problem through other solutions. I think I'm open to other solutions. I just think we need to debate it and have a good conversation as a country because it probably does mean that certain things that we're accustomed to associated with our Fourth Amendment rights might change, and that is worthy of public debate. But I'm also not willing to say that let's keep blame law enforcement for not being able to go after a threat when they're hamstrung and can't go after the threat. Like, you can literally do the same act as a boogaloo boy and as, you know, Hamas, and if you're Hamas, you get arrested and thrown in jail. It's protected speech. And you're like, that's ridiculous. You know, they both have aims to, to cause, you know, overthrow of the U.S. government or uh, hurt civilians. Like, we shouldn't place this online. And, and frankly, as you have pointed out on this podcast and elsewhere, at this point, the threat from right-wing extremist groups is more serious than the threat from overseas Muslim extremists. Exactly. I asked you before about Homeland Security and the resignation of Wolf. I, it is my understanding that it is a legal issue, and you you, you can see me smiling. The um, people yeah. on the podcast can't see me smiling. I'm smiling because, you know, this is just such a classic Trump administration debacle. Like, there are no adults left in any rooms, and so they they trip into these mistakes pretty easily. So it's my understanding that it's part, they pulled his nomination. The, the timeline here is, New Congress comes in. Anybody that wasn't confirmed by the Senate has to get renominated. His name goes up with a bunch of judges on January 3rd. And it seems odd. Like, why would you renominate a cabinet secretary for a couple of weeks? Well, the reason is, is that he cannot maintain that position as an acting unless there is a nomination pending before the Senate. Well, after he gave his statement, basically condemning Trump, um, about an hour later, the White House pulled his nomination. And at that point, there was no legal justification for him to remain acting secretary. Of course, it took the lawyers a few days to figure this out. So it's my understanding that his resignation was not uh, anything other than like legally, he's not secretary. Legally, it falls to the first in line, which is the FEMA administrator. 
So he wasn't resigning in protest over what happened at the Capitol on January 6th. He was no. resigning because of the incompetence of, of administration lawyers. And, and he reported he's still working at DHS. He went back to his old job. He's uh, the yeah. undersecretary for policy. So it's wonderful. just bizarre. Wonderful. Yeah. I mean, I, I got to say, there's something so bizarre about the moment we're in, aside from being tragic and, and scary. The president today is going down to Texas to tout those portions of the wall he's been able to build under his administration, the whole premise of which was to protect the country while this unprecedented invasion of the Capitol and ongoing insurrectionist threat of more violence in Washington is going on far more worrisome than anything that was going on at the border. I had not thought about it that way, but that is, that's actually perfect, right? Like that, that is the definition of this presidency. He creates boogeymen that aren't actually there and then doesn't want to do the job of the real threats. And that's why we end up with, you know, 300 and I've lost count, 60,000 people dead from COVID from his mismanagement and um, many more uh, domestic terrorist acts on his watch and that he incited. Elizabeth, do you still have your colleagues and friends at DHS and in within the counterterrorism community um, working in the government right now? Have you spoken to them at all? What do they say it's like being on the inside with all of this craziness that's happening? Yes. And, um, you know, there are a lot of good good men and women that are still trying to do their jobs. But it's I, they I, most of them are expressing shock, shock that it is this bad. I mean, we've watched it get bad over four years. I mean, so many, I can't tell you how many conversations I had while I was on the inside of like, this is not how you do it. And, and that it sounds, you know, petty, but like so many norms were broken and nobody knew how to do basic things like coordinate and, uh, you know, check in with people that have equities before you decide to issue a policy. And it just was broken and then got more broken and got more broken, especially as, Stephen Miller's people started taking over the department really in 2019 and in full force in 2020. And then you have this moment last week, the department was created to prevent a moment like that. Now, it was not their job to do what Capitol Police were supposed to do, but they had they were created to warn. They were created to educate partners uh, to to make recommendations on how to protect uh, and how to prevent these things from happening. And so there is no way you look at January 6th and not say this is a failure of the Department of Homeland Security. And at the same time, I don't put that at the feet of the men and women of the department. I put that at the feet of leadership of the department and of Donald Trump. I mean, he has created a revolving door of secretaries. We're at now on number six in four years. Every time you put a new secretary in or a new deputy secretary, that's a whole, the whole department stops and briefs everybody up. When you're going through that and it takes about three or four months to calibrate, I mean, do the math. That means that you can drive progress for maybe a total of a year out of four years. That's not what you want for the department that's supposed to be securing the homeland as threats are constantly emerging. We had a major cyber attack 
Uh, and that is part of the Department of Homeland Security's job. We have COVID. Um, and while there were certain parties in the department that tried their best, you know, when the after action reports are done, they will find that there is plenty to blame, of, of blame to lay, lay at the feet of DHS for not stepping up and doing its emergency management function. So like you just look at all of the, the challenges that we faced, which you know you're going to face in every administration. And time after time, DHS did not fulfill its mission. You were at Homeland Security for three years. You were warning about the threat of right-wing extremism, white supremacy, uh, and other groups. Do you see a direct line between the people you were warning about and the folks who were at the Capitol last week? Is it the same group? Has it morphed? And, you know, I guess the more difficult part of that is the group that attacked the Capitol last week was part of this larger political movement of supporters of President Trump. So is that a factor in trying to figure out how you address this? But starting with, is there a straight line between the folks you were looking at and these people? Yes and no. Yes, in that in that group, we've identified neo-Nazis, we've identified boogaloo boys, we've identified proud boys. Proud boys are maybe a little less uh, concerning from a, if, you, if you look at a spectrum of counterterrorism threat. So we've, we identified people that were at that rally that are part of the group that you would be most concerned about from a, a threat perspective of a traditional domestic terrorist organization or movement. They were there, and many of them attested to the fact that they could care less about Trump and his election. They were there to send a signal for their cause, which is they want to overthrow the U.S. government. In the Turner Diaries, there's a moment where they attack the Capitol with a very small group of people. They don't overthrow anything, but it's this kind of the, the starting pistol for the rest of the story where what follows um, is that that serves as a rallying cry and white people across the country realize, hey, we really can take over the place. And so they can start conducting mass attacks on any of their enemies and eventually overthrow the U.S. government and establish this white nation. So for the Capitol to be attacked somewhat successfully uh, last week is a, a moment, a clarion call for a white supremacist that, oh my gosh, it's actually happening. We've been talking about this for 50 years. Like, it's actually happening. I got to say, I hadn't thought about the Turner Diaries for some time. I remember reading that god-awful book back in the 90s after Oklahoma City, but the idea that it spelled out or talked about an attack on the Capitol like this is, uh, is, is a pretty disturbing thought. Yeah, and and that's just one segment of who we saw there, right? There's also the QAnon adherents. And when I was in government, maybe go back two to three years ago, QAnon was this little like, what is, that is bizarre. And you just kind of, nobody was really too worried that they were going to be a, a terroristic threat. They might have some criminal elements to it, but, you know, wasn't raising to that national security level. Well, by this late spring and early June, FBI did kind of say like, yeah, they're a domestic terrorist. Yeah. And they showed up. Um, and the, in their mythology, there's this, you know, idea of the storm, the coming storm. So you, you see a lot of people picking up on the storming of the Capitol as 
the storm. So for them, this is a moment uh, that they've been predicting and their conspiracies have come true. And what's going to happen next is dot, dot, dot. They come up with some crazy stuff. And, you know, you, that's what makes Q, QAnon QAnon is that everybody gets to participate in the game of coming up with where the conspiracy goes. And so it's kind of hard to predict, but violence is definitely on their score sheet of this is how we play the QAnon game. So you had those guys there. And then you had a ma and pa Trumper who really genuinely believe that the president had the election stolen from them and they're a patriot and they've bought into all of the rhetoric of this is 1776 and this is what it means to be a good American and you're not going to take away my guns. And they view this, this their experience is much more of a classic radicalization process where the recruiter, which in this case, wittingly or unwittingly was, was Donald Trump, you know, kind of feeds their grievance and brings them to the point where they believe that they are facing such an existential threat that the only answer is violence. So you had the, the merger of all of these different groups come together in front of the Capitol. And while if you were to pull aside any one of them, you might've gotten a slightly different reason for why they were there and what they thought this moment meant. But it nonetheless uh, was just, I, I think things that uh, psychologists and, and historians will be studying for decades, trying to understand how a moment like that happens. And it's more than just mom mentality because you, you had people that were planning for weeks and then you had people that were just caught up in the moment, right? So it's it's very hard to define, but you're back to your question. Is there a direct line? Absolutely. Because what we were seeing was increasing numbers of average Americans getting radicalized through Donald Trump's rhetoric, through his sowing of grievance. When Charlottesville happened, I certainly did not realize that's what it was. But over time, when you started to see anecdotes like what happened with El Paso, you start to realize like, oh, he, he's feeding this. He's expanding the pool of people that are vulnerable to being recruited into these darker uh, conspiracies, uh, darker movements that are prone towards violence. What did you make of his comments in the rally about which he is soon to be impeached tomorrow by the House of Representatives? Um, despicable and, and you know, also typical, right? Like it's, he's pretty consistent in who he is. The question I have, I don't know that we'll ever get an answer because he'll He'll lie. Um, did he actually understand what he had unleashed? Like, I don't know. Like, I, I when you use the rhetoric that he uses, um, and he get he gets kicks out of it. He gets kicks out of you know people like you know he'll say you know do this and he'll see them do this and they're like ah oh, they're listening to me. So like I can't tell, but you I. It almost doesn't matter. That, that's I exactly mean, right. right. It I mean, doesn't matter. You're absolutely right. Like he's still responsible. I want to be absolutely clear. Right. He's absolutely right. responsible. He has been warned multiple times, but it, there is a part of you that wonders like, is he actually as evil as he might be? Like, did he actually realize that this is what was going to happen and he wanted it to happen? I've got to say, Elizabeth, your kind of taxonomy of all of these groups that showed up at the Capitol is fascinating, a kind of dog's breakfast of extremist groups. But I, I have to ask you, what is your sort of threat assessment going forward, seeing everything that you've seen, what you saw when you were in the government, what you've seen since? And I guess related to that question is if Donald Trump has been, as you suggested, kind of the, you know, implicitly or explicitly the, the recruiter in chief, what do you think happens after he leaves office 
Does he fizzle? And does the fact that, you know, a Joe Biden and his administration is in power, you know, the message changes, the tone changes, that, does that have a real impact? Or can Donald Trump kind of in exile feed on people's grievances even more in some way? What, how do you think this plays out going forward? I think we have a couple of factors at play, and, and they played into making the situation as bad as it is. One is the pandemic. Had we experienced the election without the pandemic, I'm not sure that we would have had January 6th. I don't know that you would have the pent up anger that people have over loss of jobs, you know, loss of loved ones, you know, their life cycle just, you know, being completely disrupted this last year. And we actually studied back in March. My, I had my team when we first went into that first shutdown, I had my team go and look at all of the research and say, are we going to have more attacks because of this? And the answer was like, they came back within a day. They're like, yeah, we're, you know, it's hard to predict how, because most of the attackers that committed the attacks that have been studied were mass attacks and you're not going to have a mass of people put together, but yes, in some way, you're likely to see more people commit significant acts of violence. So we knew that violence coming out of the pandemic was going to be a common thread. And I think we saw that this summer through the, the riots and the various threat actors trying to take advantage, the militia trying to capture the Michigan governor. All of that was somewhat predictable. And a responsible president would have allowed our briefing to come to him and, you know, maybe changed his rhetoric so that he could have tamped some of it down, but um, he amplified it and it became what it became. So now we are on the other side of January 6th. And I think that a couple of things could help if we can get the vaccines distributed and we can get back to some semblance of normal life, like kids back in school, people are hiring again people aren't stuck at home sitting and spending all of their time on the internet. You know, if we can, if that dynamic shifts sometime this spring, summer, I think that lessens some of the tension. If you think of it as, you know, a fire, you're removing some of the, the oxygen that's fueling the fire because people are doing other things. Now that's not true for everybody, but as a CT professional, I'm looking at like the size of the problem we're dealing with is so huge. Law enforcement can't deal with this alone all of the prevention things that we're trying to create, they're still in their infancy. It's not very big, but even if it was at full maturity, I mean, we're talking millions of people that have been radicalized. The government cannot de-radicalize millions of people. So you're looking for how do you help de-radicalize a large enough group, shrink it so that the government resources can deal with a smaller population. So I think getting out of the pandemic, getting people back to work, that helps a ton. If Republican officials would come out and tell the truth that the president was lying, the election was not stolen, and I am complicit in encouraging his lies, and I am sorry, that would do a tremendous effect to take that large pool of radicalized individuals and shrink it. Because it Part of this is they're believing the big lie. And if you could explain it, but it has to, it can't come from me. It can't come from CNN. It has to come from inside the bubble of the big lie. You need the voices that helped make the big lie what it is to acknowledge that it is a lie. But if they were to do that, I think they would save lives. And so the, I, I really have been trying to foot stomp that in my public speaking to, to say, this is not just about justice for Donald Trump. Totally think there needs to be that or accountability. This is about preventing the next set of attacks. 
And if you would tell the truth, that could is likely going to save lives. So that reduces our pool. And then you're going to be dealing with, I think, a generational struggle of um, a number of individuals that have radicalized past the point of de-radicalization. I mean, in talking to CT professionals, they think 10 to 15 years worth of um, dealing with the individuals that, that have come out of this process. Plus, you got the, the white power movement. They're, they've always been there. They're going to stay. The militia movement, they've always been there. They're going to stay. So We've got um, in the order of probably hundreds of thousands of individuals that that uh, law enforcement is going to have to be uh, working on. Before you were assistant secretary, you were deputy chief of staff to then secretary John Kelly. Last week, Kelly spoke out finally for the first time and said, yes, President Trump should be removed from office under the 25th Amendment. Were you surprised at what he said? Had you ever heard him talk like that before or express concerns about the president's fitness before? And if so, what took him so long? He is a, a pretty straight shooter. So um, what what you're hearing him say now are beliefs that he has expressed previously. And you, he you heard them. him say, tell us what you had heard him say in the past. Um, I think in the in the time that I served with him, it was early on, and and uh, he in particular, he's not doesn't come from a political background. Um, when he chose to come in, I think he thought that. This is an entertainer that uh, will rise to the occasion. Many, many of us made that naive assumption. And it didn't take too long to realize that he lacked discipline, that he wanted to buck anybody trying to steer him in the right direction. But I don't know that some of the statements that he's made in this last year, I think that probably came out of getting closer and being the chief of staff. Um, and that's at that point, I was not with him, but it, it was pretty well known that, you know, he was serving because he felt like he was helping to protect the country. I mean, Secretary Mattis kind of had the same approach. Many of the initial- You mean protect the country from Donald yes. Trump? You know, like they, there was a, and I want to be clear because, you know, the accusation of deep state is, you know, it's totally bunk. It's not that those men and women that, that took these roles- had their own agenda. I mean, don't get me wrong. There are plenty of people in Donald Trump's White House that have their own agenda and use the president to achieve that agenda. But the ones that tried to serve the president by helping him do the right thing, they weren't trying to achieve their agenda. They just were trying to, you know, to protect the country and help the president. Initially, they thought we can educate him and then he will come to the right conclusions. He was never able to, to be handled that way. Um, and it, over time, he follows this pattern. Over time, he just, he gets, you know, uh, chafed at, you know, anybody trying to tell me what to do and uh, I'm going to do it my own way. And then he talks to 50,000 advisors a day and listens to Fox News all day long. So, you know, if you're in his orbit trying to keep him on track, you know, hey, we made this decision like five days ago, we've informed foreign partners that this is what we're doing. You can't just change your mind because Lou Dobbs said something on TV, but that's, that's how he governed. It was completely undisciplined. And I, my sense is that Kelly came to those most critical conclusions after his experience uh, being chief of staff. Elizabeth, how bad do you think this could get? Are we talking about occasional flare-ups of violence like what we saw last Wednesday, or are we talking about a sustained period where there will be violence in the streets, attacks on capitals around the country, 
terrorism, you know, on a regular basis in this country? I mean, some of it depends on how Republicans handle this moment. I know there's concern that if you impeach him, that it's likely to set off some violence. That that might be true. Um, so when I call for impeachment, it's not because I think it's not without risk. It rather that the risk of not impeaching him is greater um, by impeaching, and especially you know by having a number of Republicans that used to side with him. If they would vote to impeach and remove, that would help reduce that pool of uh, potentially radicalized people, thereby you're reducing the risk of longer-term violence. In the short term, in the next two weeks, I'm very concerned about attacks on elected officials, anybody that's speaking out against Trump, targeted or symbolic infrastructure like state capitals. The inauguration. Of course, the inauguration. Um, So they will take advantage of anything that they think that they could uh, possibly have some success with. It is interesting. I'm starting to see chatter. People are starting to react to, you know, the announcement with the FBI bulletin and that, you know, the, the, the shields are starting to go up, you know, national guards are getting deployed. So they're, you're starting to see chatter and this is a very decentralized movement. So just because you hear one set, Chatter along the lines of uh, so chatter that we need to change our tactics or chatter that, you know, we need to, you know, maybe not be so obvious. So it'll be interesting to see how that morphs over the next two weeks. But on the other side of this, what I would consider a very heightened threat period on the other side, I'm hopeful that some of the Trumpian people if you remember, so much of their anger is from this false narrative that Biden is a socialist and that they're going to all lose their guns and that, you know, basically the U.S. as we know it is going to collapse on itself. When that doesn't happen and when maybe the pandemic's not as strong as it is right now, I think that lessens some of the intensity of their extremism. And so I think some of those people just kind of go back into normal life and hopefully eventually realize how wrong they were. But the white supremacists, no, they are here to stay and they are going to take advantage of this moment that we just experienced. And I do expect that we will see more attacks. And I think the effects of the pandemic that got bottled up as we start returning to mass gatherings, I would expect to see more hate crimes, uh, attacks on uh, the Jewish community, attacks on communities of color uh, or marginalized communities, as well as um, government, if they can be successful with it. Well, Elizabeth, you've got a, uh, a long track record now of being right, but I think we can all hope in this matter, we hope you're I wrong. I do too. Um, yes. But thanks for joining us again on Skullduggery. We really appreciate your insights. Thank you guys so much for having me.